we will recite our verse for this month. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. First John 4, 16. All right, thank you. <laughs> Rubbing off on my hand there. Uh, so as we begin tonight, um, I just want to start with a quick announcement. Uh, next Sunday is, of course, Super Bowl Sunday, and we typically have a Super Bowl party. That guy in the back is celebrating. Yes, so we'll have a Super Bowl party here next week, which means instead of church starting at 5.30, we will start at 5. And uh, this is not a Baptist 5, this is an actual 5, so we will be starting at 5 o'clock sharp Eastern time. Not Baptist time. Uh, we'll start at 5 o'clock, and then we'll watch the big screen, uh, the game on the big screen afterwards. Um, the church will provide the main dishes, pizza and wings, things like that. Um, everyone else, bring whatever you like. Drinks, snacks, desserts, um, blonde brownies. Uh, you in the back there. Uh, she says she'll try. Um, we'll set up a, uh, can, we, can we set up a Facebook page, Kayla? Like an event page? Um, and then you can let us know on there what you're bringing, who's coming. Thank you, Kayla. You're the best. Um, I love how I just spring that on you here uh, in the middle of service. So uh, be on the lookout for that Facebook page, uh, RSVP there, um, and then uh, we'll have on there, like I said, what everyone will be bringing, and uh, share that page and invite your friends. You know, this is a great opportunity to invite those people in your oikos that you have been ministering to and praying for, um, people will probably be watching the Super Bowl anyway, and so if you offer them free food, that will sweeten the deal. So this is a great opportunity for that. Uh, Limitations 5 is where we are tonight. Uh, before we get into tonight's message, I have to preface this by saying that I have a very juvenile sense of humor. Okay? Um, many of you already know this about me. I laugh at things that I'm not supposed to laugh at, and laugh at times that I'm not supposed to be laughing. Um, I'm like the Navarros, who, uh, if you know them, they will always crack a joke no matter what. Uh, someone could have just died, and they're making wisecracks. That is why they're my people, okay, because I need someone to laugh with at funerals, which we have done together. Um, and so I apologize for admitting that out loud, uh, perhaps rubbing some people the wrong way by saying that. You'll understand why I'm setting this up by saying that I am woefully immature, Okay. Raise your hand if you ever saw the movie The Mist. It's a horror movie uh, based on a book by Stephen King. No one? He thinks he saw it. Okay. It was released in 2007, and it has quite possibly my favorite ending to any movie I have ever seen in my entire life. And the reason why I started by saying that I'm immature is because of how I reacted to the end of this movie, okay? This is a movie that you either absolutely love the ending or you absolutely hate it. There's no in-between. You cannot be ambivalent about the ending of The Mist. You either absolutely love the way that it ends and you laugh like I did or you boo and you tell everyone, do not see this movie because it is the worst. The ending ruins everything. It's one of those. You either, either love it or hate it. Now, as I've done many times before, and I hate to do again, I'm going to ruin this movie for you, okay? And I do so at the risk of incurring the wrath of Stephen King himself. You see, Stephen King, in his book, wrote a different ending than what was found in the movie, um, and so the director of the movie, Frank Darabont, rewrote the ending of the story because he believed that the book didn't have as much oomph as it needed. And so he rewrote the ending, submitted that for approval to Stephen King himself, and Stephen King had this to say. He said, Frank wrote a new ending that I loved. It is the most shocking ending ever, and there should be a law passed stating that anybody who reveals the last five minutes of this film should be hung from their neck until dead. Sounds like something Stephen King would say, uh, but I'm going to risk it, and I'm going to do it. Thankfully, that law hasn't been passed, and you've had like 15 years to watch this movie, okay? So this is on you if you haven't seen it yet. 
Uh, I feel like we're past the statute of limitations. Uh, I will also say that because this is a horror movie, and I'm not going to go into any of the details necessarily, um, if there's any kids watching, I'm going to talk a little bit about monsters. So, nightmare trigger warning. So, The Mist takes place in a small town in Maine. Its main characters are a guy named David Drayton and his young son, Billy. One day, a storm rolls into town, and there's this mist that begins to roll over the lake towards the town. When the power goes out, David and his son, Billy, go to the grocery store for supplies. And there, at the grocery store, is where all hell breaks loose. Okay, standing in line at the grocery store, all of a sudden, police cars and fire trucks start uh, going by, you know, sirens blaring. And then the loud emergency siren in the town starts going off. And if you've ever lived in a town where there's an emergency siren, it's weird. Anybody ever live in a town like that? We, we had one in our town, and when it would go off, it was this eerie sound, right? Everyone in town can hear this one singular siren, and you're wondering what's going on. So, they're there, and the siren goes off, and so now everyone knows something serious is going down. Before long, someone comes running into the store, and they're covered in blood, and they're yelling, There's something in the mist! There's something in the mist! And that something has taken his friend, okay? So he's yelling at the store clerk to make sure the doors are closed, everybody stay inside. And, and people are freaking out. And, and as they're freaking out, the mist begins to roll into the parking lot. And there's one guy that's like, forget this, I'm not waiting in here. And he makes a mad dash for his car. But as he makes a mad dash for the car and the mist comes over him, the people in the store can hear him screaming in agony. Then after a few minutes of panic, there's an earthquake, which makes everyone feel even better. And so they agree to stay put, keep the doors locked, everyone stay. They begin to theorize what's going on, what's happening, what's the cause of this. And they decide that no one should leave. But one woman named Melissa, actually in the credits, she's credited as woman with kids at home, but her real name is Melissa, so that's what we'll call her. She speaks up and says, I can't stay. I, I can't stay here. I've got two young kids at home. I I've got to get to them. They, they beg her, no, don't go out there. You've, you've got to stay here. It's not safe out there. And, and she's crying and she says, I can't stay here. My kids are only eight and five. And I told them I would only be gone for a few minutes. I have to leave. Would someone please come with me? And she's looking around the room, and no one's volunteering. And she's, she's looking at, but what about you? What about you? And everyone's just kind of awkwardly looking away. She's like, won't, won't anyone see a lady home? And, and no one volunteers. And so, bravely, by herself, she leaves. File that moment away. So the main character, David, he goes into the back, and he's searching for supplies, looking for blankets, and he begins to hear some really loud noises. And these loud noises sound like thing noises, like something is outside, something is trying to break in. So he tries to convince the other people that that's going on, and they're like, yeah, right, there's no thing trying to break in, you're nuts, and we need to go out and fix the generator, so we're going to go and fix the generator. So they open the back door. And when they do, these tentacles come into the room and they grab this guy and pull him outside and, of course, drags him to his death and screams and, and agony. What you find out later in the movie is that the United States government has been playing around with trying to communicate with uh, other dimensions, right? So they're trying to communicate with other dimensions and they have, by accident, opened a portal to another dimension, they were trying to create a window so they could look in, but of course they created a door. And through that door have come these monsters traveling in this mist. The mist is full of monsters. Most of them look like giant bugs. A lot of the movie is a social commentary that I don't have time to get into, but it does a brilliant job of showing how people act when they are threatened. The ways that they either band together as a unit or make enemies out of each other very, very quickly. Most significantly, it shows how people act when they're hopeless versus when they have hope. So, fast forward. People have to fight some of the monsters. Some of the people die. Some of them formed a 
cult around a crazy cat lady who is telling them that this is all judgment from God and he's demanding human sacrifice. You know, normal stuff. The normal stuff. So, as the ending of the movie approaches, David decides to leave the store. He says that the only hope is for them to leave. And so, he says we need to get out of town. So he takes his son, an older couple, and a woman named Amanda. He grabs a gun, they take a run towards the SUV, they make it into the car, and they start driving. And as they're driving, you know, they're seeing a lot of scary sights. They keep driving and driving. They can hear the monsters. They, they know the monsters are close, but they can't stop. They keep going, and they keep going. And they keep going until they run out of gas. They run out of gas, and now they are stranded in the mist. And they know what happens next, right? They, they have seen at this point the painful, nightmarish deaths that other people have experienced. And none of them can face the thought of any of them going out in that way. No one wants to die at the hands of a monster. David, especially, cannot bear the thought of seeing his son be killed by a monster. So, they are convinced at this point that there is no hope. They are going to die one way or another. There's no way that they're not going to die. And so, they make a gut-wrenching decision. Death by suicide. David, if you remember, has a gun. And so, rather than dying by monsters, they'll die by gunshots. But David realizes... That his gun only has four bullets. And there are five people. So, as they're hearing the shrieks and sounds outside in the mist, David volunteers for the most awful task. He will shoot the others to give them a quick and painless death. And then he'll let the monsters kill him. Now, in this, he also realizes that he has to shoot his own son. And as the camera pans out and shows the outside of the vehicle, there are four quick bangs of the gun. And then the camera zooms in on David, screaming in agony, in heartbreak over what he has just had to do. He gets out of the car and begins to scream an ugly cry, beckoning for the monsters to come and get him. Come on! Come on! Kill me! He's beating on the car. And then he hears a sound, and he turns around, and he hears this loud noise coming toward him, and he's ready, he's expectant, he's waiting for the monsters to come. And out of the mist, coming right towards him, is a United States Army tank, filled with a convoy of soldiers and other Humvees and military vehicles behind it. As they begin to pass him, There are uh, rescue transports filled with people who have been rescued. Behind them, monsters lay dead from the army's weapons. The camera zooms in on three people who are on the rescue transport, Melissa and her two kids. David falls to the ground, screaming, knowing that if they had literally waited two minutes, two minutes, they all would have lived. They all would have been rescued. So he collapses and screams, and the camera fades out. Roll credits. Best movie ending ever, okay? Best, I'm telling you, guys, best movie ending I have ever seen, okay? I watched this movie with my college roommates, right? And for like a full minute... We're sitting there staring at the screen with our jaws on the floor, right? And then they start booing, and I start cheering. And I'm like, that was awesome. Oh, my God, that blew my mind. If he would have just waited, they'd have all lived. But now, the, oh, my God, can you believe he did that? Favorite movie ending ever, okay? Like I told you, I, I'm, I'm immature. Now... Not only was this movie ending completely unexpected, it's painful, it's shocking, 
It was brilliant. Okay? And I'll tell you why. Because that ending was the director's way of driving home the central point of the movie. Later on in an interview, he said, Thematically, this movie provides a good companion piece to Shawshank Redemption, another movie that he directed. He said, Because if Shawshank is a a movie about the value of hope, then The Mist becomes a movie about the danger of hopelessness. And believe me, I knew that the ending was going to be one that people either really dug or really hated. And I was okay with that. Because I think at the end of the day, we should be willing to go in either direction. It shouldn't always be about making the audience love you and pandering to their approval. I like that. So he compared Shawshank and The Mist. And here's the point he was making. He said, in Shawshank Redemption, the, 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 the main character holds on to hope. And ultimately, he escapes from prison. Sorry to ruin another movie if you haven't seen that one. In The Mist, David and his group give up hope. And instead of being rescued, they die. Salvation is moments away. Moments away if they'd only held on to hope. And instead, they give up. Instead of risking waiting, they're unwilling to take that risk. And they take fate into their own hands. And by taking fate into their own hands, it costs them dearly. Now contrast that with another character in the movie, Melissa. Melissa held on to hope. She leaves the safety of the store. She charges into the mist to go home and get her kids. Everyone else in the movie was too afraid to leave this place of perceived safety. And every single one of them died. She hoped. And so she and her kids lived. And so the moral of this this movie becomes clear. Never stop holding on to hope. Even when it feels like it is the furthest away. Without hope, you will die. We're coming to the end of our series on lament. And if you've read ahead, you will know that Lamentations has the worst ending of any book in the entire Bible. Okay? Worst ending of any book in the Bible. It does not tie things up in a neat little bow like we want it to. It doesn't end on a happy note. It doesn't leave you with warm fuzzies as you leave the theater. It ends with a verse that makes you scratch your head and go, He's ending there? Like that? Are you, are you kidding me? But what I want to show you is that David, I'm sorry, Jeremiah is not at all like David. David Drayton from the movie. When Jeremiah is surrounded by the mist... Jeremiah doesn't pull the trigger. The book does end before rescue comes. It ends on a cliffhanger. But let me spoil one more movie. God does come to the rescue. The movie is the Bible. (laughs) And Israel, his people, are restored. So Jeremiah ends his lament with messy hope. Faith that feels the pain but he believes anyway because God is all he has. And I want to invite you into the same messy hope with one final lament. So, Lamentations chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. 
Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. Dude, are you serious? You're going to end the book with unless? This is the Bible, man. Have you, have you lost your mind, Jeremiah? Pretend for just a second that before any book of the Bible is submitted, there first has to be a pitch meeting with management, okay? And so Jeremiah is standing in front of the panel, and they're reading Lamentations. And and one of them has a pile of used tissues because they've been weeping the whole time. And there's another person on the panel that's muttering under his breath like, gosh, get this guy Xanax or something. Jeremiah is standing there in his sackcloth, awkwardly waiting for them to finish reading. And then the audible gasp. The person's like, what? And they all look up at him, and Jeremiah's like, good, right? Good? They're like, all right, Jeremiah, listen, uh, you can't end the book like this, okay? I know that you're referred to as the weeping prophet, and so this is very on brand, but you got to give the book a better ending than this. And, and Jeremiah's like, but why though? Well, because the audience is going to hate this, okay? There, there's no hopeful note to end on. Do you remember, do you remember how, you, how you ended your other book, Jeremiah? Here, let me read the ending of your last book, buddy. Jeremiah 52, 33 through 34 says, So Jehoiakim put on his prison garments. Sad, okay, but it gets better. And every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death as long as he lived. See, buddy, that's hopeful. That is how you end a book. You don't end it with unless. And Jeremiah like, looks at the panel and he's like, hey man, I like the ending. And people are either going to really dig it or they're really going to hate it. But I'm okay with that. Because at the end of the day, we should be willing to go in either direction. It shouldn't always be about making the audience love you and pandering to their approval. Okay, so let's take a poll. Just an honest straw poll here in the room. Raise your hand if you liked this ending. Okay? Okay. Now raise your hand if you did not like the ending of this book. It is okay for you to admit it, all right? It's not like God is going to judge you for not liking one of the books of the Bible, okay? It doesn't make you a terrible Christian. Lying makes you a terrible Christian, all right? So raise your hand if you didn't like the ending of this book. Yeah, me neither, okay? Unless. Who ends a book of the Bible with, unless you hate us, God? (laughs) Come on. So when I first watched The Mist... I loved the ending simply because it was so unexpected, because it was completely atypical. Because when you walk into a movie, you expect to walk out with everything tied together with a neat bow, and instead, this director blows it up in your face. And I have a very juvenile sense of humor, and I laughed, and I was like, I cannot believe this director had the gonads to send the audience out of the theater like that. That is amazing. But on further examination, I learned that he wasn't just trying to make the audience mad. Like like I already said, he was using this ending to drive home a point. He was driving home 
what the entire movie had been about the entire time. The danger of hopelessness. When you let go of hope, you do crazy, irrational, nonsensical things. When you let go of hope, you become a monster. Those people that were waiting in the store lost their humanity before they lost their lives. They devolve into monsters. They begin to act like savages. At one point in the movie, they torture someone before purposely throwing him outside to his death. They are monsters themselves before any monsters get them. Now, David and his group hold on the longest, but eventually even they let go of hope. And when they do, they die at the hands of the true monsters, which is hopeless humans. Only the ones who are brave enough to walk through the mist, driven by hope, make it out alive. And Jeremiah is doing the very same thing. Jeremiah is driving home the very same point. He is not ending on a cliffhanger that leaves the audience in confusion. He isn't actually questioning whether or not God is listening or whether God cares or whether God's promises are true. He is driving home the very point that he's been making the entire time. Lament is messy hope. Lament is messy hope. And I love that it's not sunshine and rainbows. It doesn't give us a false promise of ease. It it doesn't give us this pressure that we have to believe that following God faithfully always means just pretending the pain away. Walking in and always saying, I'm fine, I'm good, too blessed to be stressed, better than I deserve. We are commanded to hold on to the promises of God, and that's what we should continue to do, but we are still allowed to feel and experience and express whatever pain we're going through, whatever difficulty that we're facing, whatever trial that we're in the middle of, we are given the freedom to fully feel it and experience it and express it. And lament expresses its hope expresses its faith in the character of God without reducing the reality of our feelings or reducing the reality of of despair. It is messy hope. It's saying, God, this is how I feel right now in this moment. Here in the mist. But I'm not going to pull the trigger. I'm going to wait for the army of the Lord to show up because that is all I've got. So let's quickly recap once more where we've been so far in this series of lament. First, we learned that lament is a cry to a father that we know is listening. It is a key component of repentance because it draws you into the light, out of the shadows of shame. It is welcoming God into the wreckage as you fully own your sin. As it pertains to being sinned against, lament both joins God in judgment over that sin as well as mourning over that sin, calling both the sinner to justice and to repentance that leads to freedom. It doesn't heap shame on people. It doesn't rub people's noses in their sin, but it does call them to see the fullness of their actions so that they can repent and be forgiven by God. Then we establish that lament is what we do in order to preach the gospel to ourselves. In that moment where we're in the darkest cave of sorrow, lament is what turns our eyes upward. It turns our minds, our hearts upward. It calls to mind what is true. When we are surrounded by sadness, it trusts in God. Trusting God to be in charge of vengeance rather than sinking into a revenge mindset. It it fills us with hope even when it seems like there's not. Last week we saw that lament is both mourning and a warning. Lament, Lament offers others to see the full damage caused by sin so that they won't make the same mistake. So chapter one shows us how to lament 
and repent of our own sin. Chapter 2 showed us how to lament being sinned against and how to call people to repentance. Chapter 3 showed us how to turn our mind upward in the midst of our pain. Chapter 4 showed us how to lament as a warning to anyone and everyone so that they can be called to repentance before it's too late. And chapter 5 ends by showing us that lament is messy hope. It fully mourns, yet it never lets go of hope. It bravely walks out into the mist, believing that God will keep his promises. But it doesn't close its eyes to the mist or the monsters therein. So, today's, point, mer- uh, today's sermon mercifully only has one point. Here it is. Lament is a steadfast prayer of hope wrapped in the feelings of hopelessness. Lament is a steadfast prayer of hope wrapped in the feelings of hopelessness. So the the first thing that we've started each week with is an examination of perspective. And so we'll do the same thing here again. You'll remember that three out of the first four chapters begin with the question, how? Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. Chapter 1 begins, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. Chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. And then chapter 4, verse 1. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. And, and so this question, how, sort of defines the book. We said in week one that this is a wide-mouthed wonder. It, it is a shaking of the head. It is an expression of painful recognition at just how badly things have gotten. We talked about how Jeremiah, in this, is painting a picture. He's inviting people to look. He's saying, here's a story that I'm telling. I'm describing this for you. Pay attention. He's saying, look at this, how this has happened. See see what I'm painting here for you? Chapter 3, though it doesn't have the same how beginning, is still a describing chapter where he's inviting people to see what he has experienced and how he's preaching the gospel to himself. He invites people to look and see, this is what I have gone through. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. These are the things that God has done to me, seemingly. But let me tell you what I call to mind. I'm preaching the gospel to myself. Chapter 5, however, begins in a unique way. Beginning in verse 1, it says... Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. This is a prayer. Now that's not to say that the rest hasn't been a prayer or involved prayer because it has. But what's unique is that the other chapters have been a mixture. A mixture of prayer and dialogue with the audience. There's prayer and there's dialogue with the audience. There's a talking to God and an inviting of others to see. In chapter 1, for example, there is prayer in verse 20. Verse 20, he says, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My, ch- my stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. So there's prayer, but there's also dialogue with others. Verse 12, Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which the Lord has brought upon me, which the Lord afflicted on the day of his fierce anger. So there's prayer, and there's dialogue with others. Chapter 2, same thing. Uh, There's prayer. In verse 20, he says, Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? So there's prayer, but then there's also dialogue with others. Verse 13, what can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? So prayer and dialogue. Same thing in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 55, there's prayer. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Verse 40 
there's dialogue with others. He says, let us test and examine our ways. Let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We've transgressed and rebelled, and you've not forgiven. So in each of these chapters, there's a mixture of prayer and dialogue. Prayer and dialogue, back and forth. Chapters 4 and 5 have the same elements, but they divide them between the two. Because chapter 4 is entirely dialogue with others. It is speaking to the people directly. Chapter 5 is entirely prayer. The whole chapter is spoken directly to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And then he speaks to the Lord the various ailments that they are experiencing. It's a prayer. At the end of it all, it's a prayer. It is a speaking directly to God. It is laying everything at God's feet. One commentator puts it like this by saying, when you have done all that you can do, the one thing left is to pray. Lamentations 5 is a prayer. Now, I would also say to that, don't let prayer be your last resort, (laughs) okay? Uh, It's not as if we should do everything in our power first and then say, well, I couldn't figure this out on my own. I should probably pray. No, the point is that Lamentations ends with the ultimate offering back to God. And that is where we should end as well. That in our hearts we say, "I, I must lay this at your feet. The greatest, most important thing that I can do in the middle of all this is to pray. And so Lamentations 5 is a prayer. And it's a pretty honest prayer. I mean, there's no acting like everything's all good. There's no saying, Father God, every other word, or asking for traveling mercies. There's no unspoken prayer request here. Or any of the other common features of our typical prayer lives. In this prayer, he is honestly portraying the situation. Our inheritance is gone. We are like orphans. Our resources are dried up. Things that used to be ours are now things that we have to pay for with our labor. We have no rest. We are covered in the sinful legacy of our forefathers. We are slaves. Even our children are laborers. Our merriment has ended. Everything that, is, that was once bright is now dim. Hide your kids, hide your wife, because they're raping everybody out here. That's the prayer. Have we come to a place, have we come to a place in our collective theology where we believe that even in our prayers to God, we have to act like everything is okay when it isn't? Where we have to pretend to smile even as we pour out our hearts to God because it's somehow unspiritual for us to express to God the fullness of our pain. Have we come to a place in our collective theology where we say, if I'm going to be a good Christian, then I have to approach the throne room of God by starting with, everything is wonderful and I'm smiling. Jeremiah shows us how to honestly lament. How to honestly express the fullness of our feelings. How to open our pain up to God Because Jeremiah doesn't minimize the pain. He fully expresses it. He fully describes it. He he fully opens his heart. But the key is that he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just express pain. He also expresses steadfast hope. Verses 19 through 21, he says, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Remember how we talked about before, about the fact that unlike complaint, lament prays to God based on a confidence in his good character. That's what Jeremiah is doing. He knows how bad things are in the mist. He knows about all the monsters, the Babylonians, and 
the damage that they're doing, the lives that they're taking, the destruction that they are causing. But he's not letting go of the truth. Remember how he said it in chapter 3, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Here, he prays to God. And he says, God, in spite of everything that I'm seeing... I know that you are on the throne and you reign forever. And your reign does not depend on the kingdoms of earth. And when every single one of these kingdoms passes away, you will still be seated on the throne. There is nothing that man can do to dethrone you. You are the God of all generations. The same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I am confident that I can approach you declaring on the basis of your character that will never change, that I know you will keep your promises. And you promise that you will be faithful to us. So restore us. Renew us. Bring us back to yourself. And so lament is a steadfast prayer of hope. It's hope. It is filled with hope. Ah, but what about this ending, though? What, what, what about this odd, unnerving, open-ended, unless? Because though it is a steadfast prayer of hope, it is still wrapped in the honest feelings of a broken heart. And it is okay to express those things to God even as we hope in him. So in order to give us a little bit more hope here, we got to zoom out. Okay, and this is one of the reasons why the Bible being read as a complete unit is so important. Why we have to understand where each piece fits. Why, why we have to see that each one of these things is just one puzzle piece. And when we put the, the puzzle piece with the other pieces and we zoom out and we see the whole picture, it's so much more beautiful. This, this, is, not, this is not the ending of the movie. The movie doesn't end here. Jeremiah's life doesn't end here. Jeremiah writes this book, Lamentations, in 586 B.C., It is at this time that the Babylonians are in the midst of a siege, the second of which has taken Israelites captive. But that destruction wrought by the Babylonians will not last forever. The mist is going to clear. It doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's not like the ending of the mist where the gunshots ring out and then in the very next moment, here comes the cavalry. It's going to take 50 years. The process of rebuilding the temple will begin in 536 B.C., 50 years later. It shows us that God did not forget forever. Now, if we look at another piece, uh, another puzzle piece in this picture, we remember that Jeremiah is the same prophet who gave the Israelites both a warning and a message of hope in one of our favorite verses to take out of context. Jeremiah 29.11, right? Jeremiah 29.11, he says this. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not to give you evil, but to give you a hope and a future. We love to take that verse and embroider it onto things. Okay, we love to put it on bumper stickers and pens and t-shirts and hats and everything else. Jeremiah 29, 11, so filled with hope. Yes, but where does this verse come? This verse comes in a message to the Israelites saying to them, Listen, Babylon is going to be in control for a little while. Seventy years, uh, to be specific. And while that is happening, it is going to be awful. It, everything is going to be broken. You're going to lose all the things that you're familiar with. But don't worry. I have a plan. Hold on to me. As the Babylonians are destroying everything, as they're taking you into exile, remember, 
I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. It's about to be a bumpy ride. Hold on to hope. Jeremiah wrote that. Jeremiah wrote that 11 years before he wrote Lamentations. So 11 years ago, he writes this to the Israelites. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Okay, I'm going to prosper you. 11 years. So he knows, as he's writing Lamentations, what he has already said. He knows that God is going to keep his promise. God has already made it clear to him, and he's already communicated to the people, there is going to be another side of this. Okay? There is going to be a better ending. But now, 11 years later, he is sitting there and he's watching it happen. He's watching it unfold. He's watching the city be raised. He's watching the mist come over the town and the monsters are destroying everything. So seeing that vision and watching it happen are two very different things. And he wrote to the exiles in Babylon saying, in 70 years, God will bring you back home. Just trust him. He's going to keep his promise. But here, 11 years later, he's pouring out the emotions of a broken heart. And that is okay. That is okay. That's one of the things that we have to understand about lament. This is what it means to have feelings, but to not let your feelings have you. It's okay to have feelings. It's good to have feelings. It's not good when your feelings have you. Jeremiah knows that it's going to end with God's promises being kept. But right now, it feels hopeless. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to pray that to God. Like, I know that you're going to keep your promise unless I've been wrong this whole time. But I'm holding on. Notice that he doesn't say at the end where he says, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Notice that he doesn't say, if you've rejected us, I'm rejecting you too. I'm done. I'm looking out in front of me. Obviously, that promise that you spoke 11 years ago, I don't see it. So, peace out. I'm done. He doesn't say that. This is not him railing against God. This is him praying to God I'm going to tell you how I'm really feeling because I know that you care about how I really feel. And you want me to be open and honest and vulnerable in my my prayers to you. So I'm not going to give up hope in the promises that you've spoken. I know who you are. I know that you'll never change. So, So here's my mess. Here's my fear. Here's my anguish as I am running through the mist. Seeing the monsters. Remember what the director said about the mist. He said, the mist is about the danger of hopelessness. When people are faced with their greatest fears, how they respond to it will determine whether or not they will make it through. Melissa held on to hope and she is rescued. David and his group and everybody else lost all hope, took fate into their own hands, and their hopelessness is what cost them their lives. Not monsters. Hopelessness. Jeremiah seems like he's ending lamentations on a hopeless note. He's deep in the mist. And here's this open-ended question about whether or not God has forsaken them And whether he's going to keep his promise. But Jeremiah isn't shooting everyone in the car. Jeremiah is not actually hopeless. This is a brave declaration of hope. This is Melissa running into the mist. He is not saying God has forsaken us. God has rejected us. He's saying, God is going to restore us and renew us, unless we've been wrong about it this whole time. But you know what? This is all we got. So let's roll. Again, this is 
an example of why we must take every passage of Scripture in the context of the entirety of the Bible. Because the timeline shows us that Jeremiah didn't give up. Jeremiah did not lose hope. Jeremiah remained steadfast. Now, we don't know how Jeremiah actually died. Tradition tells us that he died continuing to do what he had been doing for 40 years, preaching the truth of God's word, and the people killed him for it. But he never wavered. He remained steadfast, and it cost him his life because the people didn't want to hear the truth. They turned on him because he was calling them to repentance. But eventually, eventually, after Jeremiah had already given his life, the people repented. And God saved them and he brought them back home. Because Jeremiah never let go of hope, even at the cost of his own life, the people were saved from the monsters. Jeremiah in doing so, became a forerunner of the greater Jeremiah, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, who was perfectly faithful in living out and preaching the truth of God, so much so that it cost him his life because the people didn't want to hear the truth. And on the cross, like at the end of Lamentations, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you utterly rejected me? But he didn't let go. He knew that God reigned forever and that he would sit on the throne for eternity. And because of his faithfulness, the people who repent can be saved from their own monstrosity. Like Jeremiah, Jesus prayed on the cross a steadfast prayer of hope wrapped in the feelings of hopelessness. And through his wounds, we are healed. Can you... Like Jeremiah, like Jesus, approach the Father with lament. Can you approach the throne with the honesty of the pain that you feel, trusting that he alone is able to save, trusting that he is good. He is a good king who reigns forever, and he desires to give you a hope and a future. If so, then you can lament with hope. But if you cannot or have not yet done that, then tonight I invite you to come to a place where, for the very first time, by the grace of God, you can. Let's pray. Father,